Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Okay, welcome. Good evening, everybody. Uh, My name is Julian Astle, and I'm Education Director here at the RSA. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to this event, which we are hosting, but actually which most of the work um, for setting this up um, was the IB Schools and Colleges Association, so our colleagues and friends, Robert and John and others, many, many thanks to them for making tonight possible. Before I introduce our four excellent speakers, I'm going to just do the usual housekeeping. Um, So the first point is please make sure your mobiles are either off or turned to silent. And... (laughs) And also just to be aware that we are filming this evening's event um, and live streaming it over the web on two channels, both the the RSA and the TES. So welcome to people out there who are are joining us on on the internet. Um, And a hashtag, which we always have to do nowadays, the hashtag for those who want to get involved in the wider discussion on Twitter is hashtag RSAIB, so hashtag RSAIB. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to just um, introduce the guests all at once before, before I then ask them um, to, to give us their opening presentations. Um, so on my far right, we have Sir Anthony Selden, who will be known to most of you. He's the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Buckingham, and formerly the master of Wellington College, um, who has written probably as many books per year as I write blogs. It's it's an amazing um, output. But anyway, and on my immediate right, and on Anthony's left, is uh, Naomi Clymer. Naomi is the co-chair of the Institute for the Future of Work and was formerly the president of the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Welcome to you, Naomi. Um, On my immediate left, we have David Bars. David is the head teacher of the Anglo-European School, which is an IB school in Essex, um, who will be able to talk to us about the realities of running both the IB diploma and the career-related program in a state school in England, and I believe you were the first state school to adopt the diploma back in the 1970s. 77. 77, and the first state school to adopt the career-related program as well, is that right? 2010. So, at the cutting edge. Um, And then finally, uh, David Willits, Lord Willits now, um, who is the executive chair of the excellent Resolution Foundation think tank. Um, and former Minister for Universities and Science and the author of an excellent book, which we promise to plug at every opportunity, um, called A University Education. So, David, welcome to you too. The format um, for tonight is I'm going to invite each of our speakers to talk to you for five or six minutes, and then we will pick up on the themes that emerge and then open it up to questions from the audience. And we're going to start with Anthony Selden. Anthony. So I'm going to ask Julian a question here. Julian, five minutes ago, said, um, I'm really sorry to say this, but does anybody have a pen on the panel? I'm going to ask Julian a question. Did you study IB in the sixth form? 
if I had Anthony, as you well know, I would have had a pen because <laughs> I would have developed some, some self-discipline and some good learning habits. There you have it. A round of applause for our chair, please. Because even though he didn't study the IB, he still has some social skills and self-knowledge uh, there, even if rather lamentable. Um, now, who here studied the IB themselves? Hands up. One, two, three, four people. Who here is teaching the IB? Right. Okay, that's really very interesting. Um, and one thing I've noticed already about tonight is that the IB people got here on time, and it is those who didn't study or teach uh, the IB who are late. So when the latecomers come to that door, just feel a kind of superiority, but also compassion, because it, we, it does teach compassion. On to some serious stuff now. I'm going to give you five uh, statements here, which I, I think are... Um, I think they're just really revealing uh, about the world in which uh, we live. Um, IB graduates go on to earn more money. <laughs> Secondly, their children go on to earn more money, whether or not they themselves did IB. Third, it's well known through countless uh, evidence-based university research studies that IB graduates have better sex lives and are happier than those who studied A-level. Four, the current US president studied the IB when he was young. Five, the current US president is having the most successful administration than any US president in history. Now, we know that's true because he told the UN General Assembly yesterday. Now, um, those of you who are teaching the IB, whereas those A-level lost souls, I think we can call them, would be saying, oh, really? They're really turning to your partner on either side, really? Who would have thought that? The IB people are discerning, and they know to cut through truth from falsehood. Of course, none of those facts are true, apart from the one about having happier sex lives. So... Let us just look at this proposition, serious stuff. I have, I'm now running a university. I taught in schools for 30 years. I only came across the IB when I got to one of those schools, Wellington College, where we adopted the IB. And it was everything that I longed education to be. And I feel profoundly passionate um, about it, because I just think that it's so much better than any other system, categorically and in every way. And though my comments will be more about the IB diploma, not the other programs, we also had the middle years program, there are the other IB programs, and they, part of the great glory is that they all mesh together. Um, but there are seats at the front, by the way, uh, no, uh, no smug looks at each other, please, to the latecomers. Um, so why, why is it? So uh, the, the traditional A-level narrows us down, and it narrows down 
the whole understanding of what intelligence is. Intelligence is defined by those male academics at the University of Breslau in 1912 on which our entire uh, world system of education is grounded. Uh, they found, they were astonished when they'd come up with what their notion of intelligence was and they sent out tests, trials to schools and the people who came best, did best in their tests of intelligence were people and they were shocked uh, when they found this out. They couldn't believe it. The people who did best on their intelligence tests were, who would have thought it? People just like them. I mean, amazing. They were male. They were white. They were middle class. They were left brain cognitive thinkers, and they were all quite dull. This form of intelligence is no longer what the world needs. And if it it would be almost laughable if it wasn't so serious. Study after study shows very clearly from the marvelous David Deming Harvard study in 2015 all the way through Jack Maher at the World Economic Forum to the Nesta uh, study in 2018 show that the very skills at A-level and the whole school system is gearing our young people towards are the very skills that algorithms will do better. And yet, what happens? Nothing happens because our education system, the world over, is teaching people pretty well for the 20th century, a world that no longer exists. And this is deeply serious. The IB does a much better job. Secondly, I love the IB because it teaches initiative, imagination, personal responsibility, problem solving, uh, including understanding about what's happening in the world with the environment, the melting of the North Pole ice cap, the gravely serious issues that we would be taking far more seriously in this country if the government wasn't so obsessed with its own goal of Brexit. Thirdly, the IB got on to character, well-being, grit, resilience, the stuff that Marty Seligman, Angela Duckworth talk about 40 years before they talked about it. They'd never even heard of the work of the IB. This is the idea that you are teaching, first of all, like the IB has always known, you're teaching a human being, you're teaching a soul, you're teaching a child, you're teaching the child emotionally, spiritually, creatively, physically, socially, morally, in every way, and not just cognitively. Fourthly, two more to go. I I'm really worried. I'm really worried by the trend towards uh, xenophobia, uh, towards nationalism, the retreat from liberal values the world uh, over. Um, I'm worried by uh, the closing down of globalization. The IB is truly an international system. And if we shape our young people to give them that generosity through the breadth of the curriculum, within the arts and sciences, within the curriculum, understanding that it's not just the literature, the knowledge of one world in which you're being studied, but it's a global understanding. From the very beginning, it gives young people a sense that we belong in one world and only by knowing that we live in one world and that the more we know, the less certain. Yeats said, the worst lack all conviction, the 
the, 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 sorry, the, the, the worst are full of passionate intensity, the, 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 and, and whereas the best uh, lack that conviction, uh, they lack that certainty, and that's exactly what the IB does. And finally, the exam system with A-level uh, and GCSE makes us learn the right answer to deliver in the right way at the right time, and without even realizing it, I'm I do a lot of work with mental health and so much of mental illness and it's frightening running a university to see how many young people who might or might not have done very well uh, with their uh, terminal exams when they finish the upper six, but they simply don't know how to look after themselves. One reason they don't know how to look after themselves is because they don't know who they are because the GCSE and A-level system is not remotely interested in who they are. It's only interested in them delivering the right answer in the right way at the right time. The IB is much more interested in, in, in a more generous uh, psychologically sound notion about what it means to be an educated and civilized person. So let me conclude just with one point, Julian, and I'm sorry about saying that about the pen, that was too much honesty, uh, is that uh, I, I think that to, to come back to that great guru of, of world education and, and philosophy, Donald Trump, I would say that the IB, uh, uh, that Donald Trump uh, exemplifies everything that I've fought in my entire life in education. Uh, to, to, he, he is the opposite of everything I believe in, and everything I believe in is the IB. Ibsco, I hope you've got that for your next leaflet. What a great final sentence. Um, Naomi. Thank you. So uh, I'm an engineer, uh, and my expertise is technology, so I am horribly intimida intimidated to just be surrounded by all these educators. Um, but I do think that education and technology are inextricably linked these days. Uh, we're all using a lot more tech than we used to in our everyday lives. We're looking at a future full of smart cities and driverless cars, artificial intelligence, automation, the Internet of Things, and so on. And so technology already has and will continue to change our lives, the way that we live and work. And so I'm really looking to education for a couple of things, um, specifically from my tech perspective. So number one, um, with engineering in mind, uh, this country desperately needs more engineers and technologists than we're producing. Uh, and that shortfall is predicted to get a lot worse over the next few decades. Um, and so we need education to be sparking the interest in science and technology from a really young age. And we also need um, education to keep the kids connected to technology and comfortable with technology throughout. And that would be good for everyone, but it would also be good for uh, giving people that spark, that idea that they might want that as a career. Um, and in particular, we do need in this country to find ways to encourage more women into uh, science, technology, engineering, and maths, into STEM. Uh, and frankly, we, we've got the worst track record in Europe for doing that, which is kind of disappointing. Um, and so it's, it's, I guess the reason I'm here is that I've been a vocal supporter of the IB because um, the limited research that we've done shows that... Um, that the IB is good for getting women into tech subjects because it allows them to make the choice a bit later and on the whole society puts women off uh, tech when they're teenagers um, and they're talked out of it. 
but as long as they uh, have a breadth of subjects behind them, they can choose to do it later, whereas if you've nailed down your choices at 14 or 16, you may get the urge to be techie later, but you simply haven't got the right foundation subjects to do it. So uh, I've been pro-IB for a while uh, for that reason. But in fact, the IB is great anyway because of its emphasis on kind of individual initiative and problem solving and imagination, all of which are a fantastic foundation for technologists. Um, so that's one hat. Uh, the second hat I have is as the co-chair of the Institute for the Future of Work. Um, and there we're thinking about the types of jobs that are likely to be available in the future once everything's automated and artificially intelligent. And it isn't just the low-paid jobs that are going to be affected. You know, we'll, there's lots of middle-class professions like accountant and lawyer that are going to be affected as well. Um, so it's going to affect everybody. And so there's kind of a few questions I have for education. One is, uh, and in fact, um, Sir Anthony mentioned this anyway, you know, are we equipping the next generation with the right skills for this future world. And I, I, it seems to me, and I'm no expert in education, but I am in tech, it seems to me that the answer to that might be no. Um, the kinds of things we, we need to be teaching people is the things that humans are uniquely good at. So things like empathy and big picture thinking, making connections, relationship building, imagination and creativity, all those things. Um, and that actually stuffing them full of knowledge or teaching them something very deep in a very narrow area is the stuff that machines are going to do better than we do. Um, and so as a question about how much of that uh, is appropriate to be doing. Um, and so that comes back to having a broad curriculum as, as seeming, seeming to me to be a good thing uh, for the future of tech. Um, rather than front-end loading education as well, um, it seems that people are already, and in future even more, changing career a lot. They will need to be acquiring new skills throughout their lifetime. So I think we also need education to be creating a mindset of lifelong learning um, rather than front-end loading education. So it's all done in the first 20 years, and that's your lot, um, to just get into um, a mindset where education is for life, where we, we provide access to education throughout life and equip people to know how to uh, embrace that and use that throughout their life. And then my final point really is about um, making the most of technology for the purposes of education, which I know can be quite a controversial topic, so I'm probably on thin ice here. Um, but there's a lot, of, a lot of good work going on in the space. Uh, I know that um, JISC, the uh, UK's Digital Body for Education and Research, um, has done a number of surveys that suggest that um, certainly in um, HE and FE, only about half of students feel that they've been equipped properly um, for operating in the digital world. And um, there's research going on by people like Rose Luckins in UCL um, looking at how to use AI to understand learning better. And it's kind of frustrating sitting on the sidelines of education because I kind of feel like we should be in a position by now where everybody on this planet could have access to some sort of education. And it's frustrating that we don't yet seem to have achieved that. And I know it's kind of very simplistic and probably naive wish. And I understand lots of the concerns about bringing technology into teaching, but I, I am interested in how we can harness the kind of human capabilities of teachers, but enhance it by bringing uh, the support of intelligent, uh, personalised technologies to make teaching even richer. Mm, that's Thanks. Fantastic. Thank you. Very good. David Willett, over to you. Well, first of all, happy birthday to the IB. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's 50, and we should celebrate it.
And I can sense this, there's the slight evangelical revivalist flavor to this discussion. So I should begin by sharing with you my journey to the IB. Um, and it, it's got, there were three steps in it. The first step, it was that uh, the chief master of the school where I studied, indeed we studied there together, John Clawton, when he went back to King Edward's Birmingham as the chief master, introduced the IB in a very bold move. You know, one day, went to, at the start of the school year, went to a full IB program. Uh, and I was following with great interest, therefore, what's, happened, what's been happening at the school where I myself studied and have seen its effect on the boys and the type of education that's provided at King Edwards. Um, so I, I was familiar with the, with the initiative that way. Then, more uncomfortably in a way, uh, I had a job in the cabinet, which I really enjoyed. Indeed, I'd asked David Cameron uh, for the post, Universities and Science. But compared with science ministers around the world, my knowledge of science was rather modest. And the science community was incredibly tolerant of a science minister who really had not got as much understanding of science as I should have. My A-levels were in history, English, and German. I did those three A-levels because the most charismatic masters at King Edward's in my time were the history master and the English master. So I did the subjects that they were teaching. It was very simple. Uh, and now, of course, too much knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Just occasionally you're sitting around some international meeting and the Japanese science minister who proves to be a personal expert on nuclear fission is explaining to you why the model they're using at ITER in the south of France is not going to work and they should try a different, they should use laser-based fusion and just occasionally you think, hang on, that's really not helping the discussion. But the, in general, I was shocked by the barbarism, which became increasingly clear to me that at the age of 16, I'd taken these decisions as a result of which a significant part of the intellectual advances of the modern world were basically a closed book to me. And the science community was incredibly good at tolerating my layman's questions about what they were doing and why, but it shouldn't be like that. And it is outrageous that at the age of 16, that is what uh, youngsters still decide in Britain. And then thirdly, as you've heard from Naomi, a problem that we particularly wrestle with is access to STEM subjects, especially access amongst uh, teenage girls to STEM subjects. And I went to meeting after meeting, and number 10 got all very interested in how you could run a better PR campaign that persuaded 16-year-old girls that they should do STEM A-levels, when really that is not the point. The point is 16-year-olds shouldn't be making those type of decisions at all. It is a ludicrous system. And in terms of STEM and engineering, and I do provide these estimates in my book because it's one of the themes in my book, how we've got to this position. If you are a leading research-intensive university in England recruiting for engineering, you will expect your students to have A-levels in maths and physics. By the age of 16, I go through the figures, by the age of 16, the 16... The 16-year-olds who have a -level, are doing A-levels in maths and physics comprise 4% of all 16-year-olds. No other advanced Western country narrows its recruitment pool for engineers at the highest professional level to 4% of people at the age of 16. 
And you could do the same in many other disciplines. It is an absurd arrangement. So I realized that all this endless campaigning we were supposed to do to get teenagers interested in subjects was ignoring the fundamental issue that we were expecting them to take decisions that they shouldn't be taking. Now, the question I would like to focus on, however, is a more uncomfortable question for the advocates of IB, uh, which is quite simply, why is there not more IB in England? Because let's just go through the history. The Tomlinson Report in 2005 proposed a broader curriculum and a lot of the people, Anthony, amongst his many qualities, of course, is a historian of government. And I think one of the interesting questions is why the Blair government in 2005 didn't implement Tomlinson. But what they persuaded themselves when they decided not to do Tomlinson was that in, at least in every LEA, uh, teenagers would have access to a school or college where they could do the IB. That was the promise when they didn't do Tomlinson. And they started reasonably. By 2008, uh, there were 230 schools in the UK doing the IB. There are now 111 schools doing the IB. Uh, they, there were, in 2008, 3,200 students, and here the news is slightly better. It peaked at 5,000 students doing the IB in 2011-12, and it's fallen back a bit to 4,600 students doing the IB now. So this is a cause, let us be frank, this is a cause which is not advancing, it is now retreating. Why is that? Now, there are some specific reasons. I know, uh, I wasn't present in the discussions, but I have it on good authority, that, that Michael Gove's education secretary disapproved of the IB. International, baccalaureate, rootless cosmopolitan education, not grounded in the history of this country and its canonical body of knowledge. So there is a kind of high Tory critique these, are, these skills that have been celebrated for the first half hour, do, are we, do we want skills to be separated from people's cultural and historical identity? So there's a kind of that Tory line of criticism. The secondly, the Treasury and public expenditure costs. If you want to save money, you narrow down. The whole English model is you save money by getting people through their education quickly, and specialising helps, helps to get them in and out the door quickly. We have the Western world's youngest graduates. We get people through education quickly, and early specialisation is part of that. And, of course, the most recent example of that is going down to only funding three A-levels in, in uh, six forms. But be, as well as those specific reasons, there is a wider reason which goes to the heart of the pattern of our education in England. And it is the unusual power that universities have in England compared with in advanced Western countries. Universities have the power to choose who they admit. There is no entitlement anywhere for anyone to get a place at university. And I don't think we appreciate something else to try to explain to my book, how unusual a model this is. In most countries, if you're above a certain mark in a school leaving exam, if you're above a certain percentage performance in your school or whatever, you will have an entitlement to go to university, your local or regional university perhaps, but to go to university. There is no such entitlement. Universities decide who they wish to admit. That has always been the system. 
And they, when they decide who to admit, they began, the A-level is an emanation of universities choosing who to admit, particularly designed by subject specialists choosing who to admit to study their subject. And what do they look for? They look for people who already know a lot about that subject and have already displayed an aptitude for it. Uh, In the days before there was proper public funding for higher education, the only way a kid from a low-income background could get to university was getting an Oxford or Cambridge scholarship. The Oxford and Cambridge scholarship exams were constructed around individual subjects. You had to decide, and your grammar school master would be saying, you are good at history, Master Willits. If you want to get to Oxford, specialise in history, I think you should do history in the scholarship exam. So this is universities deciding who they should admit, and particularly a balance of power within the universities where the individual departments decide who they will admit because people go to university to study a particular subject. Completely different in the US. The biggest single subject offered to get into US university is is undeclared. You go to university, and in the first year, you try out a range of different courses. Interesting, by the way, a very good way of driving up teaching standards, because the lecturers are competing to attract the students to their course by the way they teach it in the first year at university, so that you might then do it as your major in the second year. So we have a very unusual structure of higher education which puts the power in the departmental heads in individual universities, and they choose who they want to admit on the basis of how much you know. So when Michael Gove summoned the representatives of the major disciplines to advise him on what the state of their disciplines was, the historians turned up and said it's shocking how little history they know at the age of 18. And the physicists say it's shocking how little physics they know. When we know the real scandal is how little physics the historians know, and how little history the physicists know. It's the other way around. If he'd asked, what would you like students who aren't studying your discipline to know as the basics of being a civilised person, as he scrolled by, that a very different answer. So my advice to the advocates of IB is the real decision-taking power is the people sitting in university departments deciding on the criteria of admission to their courses, and they are the people you have to persuade, and they are currently setting the exchange rate for the IB at a very high level because they don't want people to come who haven't got an A-level grade of quite a high level in their subject if you're in the Russell group. That is the audience, and as much as the political class, it's that group of people in university who have to change their approach. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, David. And now to the other David, David Barb. Six minutes is about what I get in reality uh, for an assembly each week. Um, And I, I often remind my students that it really is a privilege to speak to a captive audience. Um, and they hopefully are captive in in one sense at least. Um, Six minutes is a short amount of time. I have a lot to say. I've pre-prepared it. Um, I hope you'll forgive that. But thank you to the panellists for making the case for the IB, for also advocating a recalibration of our education system. I think it's timely that we do this as we embark on the Chief Inspector's year of the curriculum, where she seeks to redress the balance in favour of the quality of education as opposed to mere outcomes. My own school was part of that research, published only last week, and that has contributed to this conclusion. 
The good news is that there are schools pioneering many of the ideas you are advocating, schools which put mission before politics, values before data, and quality before quantity. The RSA's own ideal schools are amongst them. My own school, the Anglo-European School, is another. Despite an unusual, if not topical, name, it is a state school of some 1,500 young people, co-educational and comprehensive. It pioneered the baccalaureate curriculum design principles since its inception in 73, two years before the first referendum on our membership of Europe, and the debate was high profile, and that did influence the formation of the school. It's now a misnomer, however, it should really be the Anglo-International School. In the same year that the IB celebrates its 50th birthday, we celebrate our 40th year as an IB World School. Our IB school number, allocated chronologically, is 007. <laughs> Eight. Um, <laughs> 0078. There are now... The children love that. Uh, there are now almost 5,000 such schools worldwide. That combination of a rigorous and carefully structured diploma alongside the more flexible career programme, which a colleague of mine just yesterday described as a beautiful thing, makes a powerful contribution to the success of my sixth form. They are both baccalaureates, both capable of challenging a wide range of abilities despite popular misconceptions, both excellent platforms for progression to higher education in whatever shape, manner or form that might now look like. So what is a baccalaureate education? Our normal sources, our dictionaries and our Google, give us little more than a reference to bachelor's degrees and laurels. A definition of a baccalaureate curriculum is not easily found. I would offer you this. A baccalaureate programme is an educational experience that is broad, involving all major subject disciplines, balanced in that specialisation is deferred or avoided, and coherent with clear values, learner outcomes and themes which add relevance to subject study. The programme adds up to more than the sum of its parts and provides for the rounded education of the student. Learning is concurrent to enable connections to be made and the programme is founded on a very clear set of values. A baccalaureate curriculum will also contain a core of learning common to all learners, which could include individual research, an element of study skills, work experience or internship, and an opportunity to demonstrate service above self. The core provides an opportunity for learning to be applied, as well as to deepen understanding and enrich learning itself. Where appropriate, assessment is rigorous and based on agreed criteria, which are not subject to change, other than as part of a, a periodic and systematic review. You can apply this definition to an A-level or GCSE-based curriculum with certain adjustments to be made. Whilst there are schools committed to this type of education, I'd like to go one step further. I believe that if we were able to strip away austerity, the challenges of teacher recruitment and accountability measures, and then ask head teachers, indeed teachers generally, for one precious moment to imagine what the school education in, uh, system in England should look like, I believe there would be a consensus in the profession for just this, a broad, coherent, holistic, internationally-minded, values-driven curriculum. In fact, not dissimilar, and I'm old enough to say this, to the original national curriculum with its cross-curricular themes. I seem to recall at that time a value statement that went with it, that, um, but we, sadly we see little of that now. 
Those same head teachers and teachers might also agree that the curriculum be run by an arm's length charitable organisation not prone to the slings and arrows of political fortune, again taking its lead from the IB. Evidence for this emerging consensus, I believe, can be found in the recent establishment of the National Baccalaureate for England Trust, not to be confused with the English Baccalaureate, which, using the definition I've just shared with you, is not, it is fundamentally not, a baccalaureate. It is merely a collection of individual subjects. Based on core learning, personal development, and a personal project, the NF NBFE, the National Baccalaureate for England, was inspired by the IB. The National Baccalaureate is also evidence of the pervasive influence the IB has had in its first 50 years. It has been a leader in educational thinking and has set a standard for those values-driven, internationally-minded and coherent curricular models. Its four programmes have given educators a progressive philosophy and it has given succeeding generations of students an education fit for the 21st century. Whether it is the primary years programme, the middle years programme, the career programme, the diploma, or some or all of these, an IB World School is not just an institution, but a community tied inextricably to a global network of schools. I have the privilege this year of meeting with our IB cohort. I asked them why they chose it. The common replies were about not wanting to give up subjects. These are, this is out of the mouths of young people, 16, 17, 18-year-olds. Not wanting to give up subjects, wanting something that was recognised internationally. Some just wanted to be different. Others, the majority in fact, shared their view that they just loved learning and they were honest enough to say that. Languages, English, mathematics, the arts, the humanities and science wrapped around creativity, activity, service a course in the theory of knowledge and an extended essay give them the depth and breadth they seem to crave. This core is what some would call the beating heart of the programme. Typically, the career programme students wanted a more professional, practical, career-oriented experience. For instance, in my school, with Liverpool Street 35 minutes away by train, we offer the Institute of Financial Studies course, which has an A-level equivalence, as one of the career-related studies around which is wrapped other IB courses, a personal and professional skills course, a reflective project based on an ethical issue, an element of service learning, and a language development requirement at its core. Also, in the world of the Anglo, work experience is statutory for CP students. One day I will rule the world, but in the world of the Anglo, it's statutory. These are the young people, these are the young people who will help create a better and more peaceful world, to quote the IB mission statement, and who will understand that other people, and this is one of the most challenging statements I have come across, and if only we could apply it to the current debate on our membership of the European Union, quoting the mission statement, and who will understand that other people, with their differences, can also be right. These are the young people who will be imbued with the attributes of the IB's learner profile. They'll be inquirers, thinkers, communicators and risk-takers. They'll be knowledgeable, caring, principled, balanced, reflective and open-minded. They will learn locally and think globally. They'll be confident in their own cultures and confident in moving between cultures. They'll be fit to take up the varied employment opportunities 
that will come their way and they'll be fit to change the world. Happy birthday, IB. <laughs>
were the very forces that the Blair Number 10, despite Andrew Adonis pushing it in 2005, uh, were the forces that they were worried that they were going to combat. Secondly, it's a lack of leadership. And David, you have been a wonderful, perhaps the best friend that we've had amongst um, uh, ministers and former ministers. But even then, when you were university's minister, you were not as outspoken as you might have been. And there haven't been others who have spoken out in this country for the IB. Thirdly, universities, you're completely right, but I would mention vice-chancellors also. I'm now a vice-chancellor. I'm shocked, you know, uh, uh, by the fact I find it very hard to name more than two or three um, vice-chancellors who are educationalists, people who actually deeply understand what the human journey of learning and compassion and enlightenment is all about. And how many can you name who've actually said... How many can you name? But how many vice-chancellors can you name who've actually said anything really interesting and powerful about the human condition. And, and the final point is, and critically this, it is the IBO. I think the IBO has done a good job, but it could have done a much better job of advocacy uh, and also innovation. And I feel disappointed because I said we need, uh, precisely because of this point, we need an IBHE, and I gave a program for my university, how are we going to start the IBHE? And they were all for it, and then they backed away from it. We need to have IB coming up to the next level, and once we get that. So those are the factors, but it's a great story, and we're never more needed, and we have to advance. And, and there we have the real heroes, John Clawton, who David mentioned, and others. There are true heroes of British education and world education in this room, and I salute you all. Another one for the uh, pamphlet. David, do you want to come in? I think the real challenge is to... We have a national curriculum which is neither national nor a curriculum <laughs> anymore. We have schools that can opt out of the, school, of the curriculum, so it's not national, and we, don't have, we have a set of subjects and we don't have a philosophy, we don't have a set of values. The IBS gives us that with spots on. But the real challenge is to make that accessible to succeeding generations of young people across the piece, not just in the independent sector, not just in the higher echelons of the state sector. These are programmes that are available to all students. And I'm talking about the middle years programme from 11 to 16, the primary years programme. There's a set of values there that are common values about our humanity. When David gives us those awfully depressing statistics about the decline of the IB in this country, that is driven largely not by whatever Michael Gove has thought about it. I have a letter from him saying how wonderful it is and how great it is that my school does it, but there's obviously a conflict something, somewhere there. But the, the real issue is about the cost of it. Mm -hmm. And schools yeah. are falling back from it because they cannot, they simply cannot afford it. Um, but, but, what I, but of those 111 schools that are currently do it, I would say, Robert, maybe 30 or 40 are in the state sector. And yet, in the days of Tony Blair, it was wonderful when he announced one school in every local authority and all these schools from Essex went to, to the Department for Education only to be told that we were already doing it. Um, <laughs> so that didn't help, but that <laughs> fell, apart, fell away. But I think at that time, the 240 schools or so it was 50-50, state uh, independent, and now it's where it is. And that, unless we generate a values-driven experience for young people, 
then the forces that you talk about, Julian, will, for the time being at least, uh, be influential. Thank you. Naomi. Well, yeah, just to sow a bit more doom around the forces, really, that um, it, it kind of keeps me awake at night. You know, we're already talking about the trend today of nationalism. And in terms of tech, let's assume we do manage to start educating everybody on the planet, which I genuinely think is plausible. Um, another thing that's happening is that technology is enabling more and more remote working. And so now you've got globally educated people who can compete for jobs all over the world. Um, and so that's, that's going to dramatically change the workplace. It's going to change who we're competing with for work. Um, and if we're not open-minded, internationally minded, we would see that as a threat and uh, close down even further. And yet, it feels to me like an amazing opportunity, uh, but you absolutely need people that have been educated to think about that differently and be a bit more broad-minded. Uh, so I, I just worry that the trends that we're seeing will only get worse, and technology, unfortunately, is going to help that, and yet it could be, it could be something really extraordinary. David, any, anything you want to say at this stage? Um, you can wait if you'd rather. Yeah, let's wait. Let's yep. wait. Let's open it up. The, um, so what I'm going to do is, depending on how many hands shoot up, probably take them in batches of two or three at a time. Um, there's a roving mic or two. two. Um, so when I call you, please wait for the mic. Um, please let us know who you are. And then try and make your, your questions and comments as concise as possible, please. So we'll start with the lady towards the back there. I'm um, Kath Murray from Schools Week newspaper. Um, my question is, um, it frustrates me because there's a very a big advocate of IB that the rhetoric seems to be um, this dichotomy between the skills and the knowledge and that people, when they talk about IB and when they talk about 21st century skills, seem to imply that tech will make deep knowledge irrelevant when I think that IB actually focuses hugely on knowledge. Um, it's just the rhetoric, I think, seems to be, from what I've heard, wrong around that. And if you're trying to get more uptake in the current climate, why don't you focus more on the fact that IB is about deep, strong knowledge, which is really vital in a tech economy? Having teenagers myself, I know, fake news You've got to have knowledge in order to be able to discern what is on the internet and what is true. And knowledge is even more important in an age of over-information. So that's my question. Thank you. And then gentlemen in the back row over there in the blue jacket, that's it. Hi, it's uh, Will Hazel, and I'm a reporter from uh, the Times Educational Supplement. Um, it's a question for all the panellists, but particularly uh, to Lord Willits. Um, you said that the narrowing of the curriculum at 16 is ludicrous. Um, we've obviously just gone through this big period of exam reform with GCSEs and A-levels. Would you like to see sort of further reform to broaden out study uh, after 16 along the lines of the IB model? Nick Hillman at the back. Uh, thank you, Nick Ilman. I run a think tank called HEPI. Um, uh, what I'm hearing, uh, as no expert on the IB, is that its strengths come from diversity, uh, diversity of subjects and, and other things. But I'm also hearing a panel 
that is quite united and consensual in their approach. So just to play devil's advocate, I'm keen to know what a panel would say to a young person who thought their love of learning only blossomed when they were able to reduce the number of subjects they were studying to three. Because for some young people, and I, I did used to be a secondary school teacher, that is the case. Thanks very much. Um, who would like to start? Pick, you don't have to answer every question. Not everyone has to answer them. Pick the things you're interested in. David, why don't you go yeah, first? And, uh, the answer to the uh, inquiry is, yes, I do think... I would like to see a broader range of subjects studied by uh, students from the age of 16. The, I think, looking at it politically, uh, there is, to be honest, although I love the IB, I think the IB is unlikely to be the way a nationwide system goes. What I would do is I would keep A-levels, keep the name A-levels, and say, following up on Anthony's advice, we love A-levels so much and are so committed to A-levels, we think it's a scandal that people can only do three of them. And that we, uh, the future is a five A-level option. And uh, you might even get to six A-level. You would keep, you don't, so don't make it a abolition of A-levels issue. And I think what's the pressure point, how, where we get there, because there's no appetite for sort of big change at the moment, which I completely understand. My view is what you can see happening at universities, which are drivers of this, is a shift in attitudes at universities. So the problem I described is still there. And the trouble is you, you need a... There are some universities which absolutely approach the IB in the spirit that I outlined earlier. But UCL now trying to create a, a liberal arts course. Um, I'm a visiting professor at King's, which is really trying to make the IB rate attractive, a very favorable exchange rate for IB, and are trying to attract. And we are in danger of getting into a kind of hourglass education system where the universities are offering broader courses than people can do for the two years at school and indeed we will now and that puts us in the peculiar position where universities have to do um, remedial courses for young students coming back at doing a subject which they gave up at 16 which is a, it's and so the kind of emergency maths that universities have to provide for people who stop doing maths at 16 isn't what you should be expecting in higher education but it has to be done because people turn up and suddenly they need some maths and they haven't been doing it for two years so I think that my hope, the other half of what I was saying, is I hope that just as universities have driven the creation of the old system, as we now have uh, uh, students voting and choosing courses that are broader, this will drive change in university behaviour and government should respond to it by expecting people to do more A-levels. Uh, oh, sorry, go on. All right. Um, I'll obviously answer the tech question. Um, I'm sorry if I gave the impression that I think we don't need knowledge at all. Uh, that's, not, that's not the case. Uh, and you guys are much better at judging what's the right amount of core knowledge to give people, but clearly um, we need enough knowledge to sense-check the machines. Uh, when your sat-nav tells you something and you think, hang on, that doesn't sound right, it's important you know enough to make those kinds of judgments. Um, so, uh, so absolutely, we need to deliver that. But the thing that I think is important is that um, kids in school are, A, 
uh, given a foundation that allows them to discern right from wrong, true from false, um, but also the knowledge of how to go out and learn new stuff if they want to, but also that first so that throughout their life they're just open to the idea of learning something new, learning a new skill, they know where to go look uh, if they want to find something out. So we don't have to fill them up with all the knowledge they're going to need for their life right up front. Um, that's the kind of thing they can learn later. So I, I just feel the sort of obsession with packing every last piece of knowledge in before they leave school may not be right. But I, I'll let you guys judge what the right level is. And Kath's point, you're, you're right. It, it, it's only a perception. In my experience as a head, they had deeper knowledge uh, than A-levels and more real knowledge, and particularly with the narrowing down of certain A-levels. And I think we'd welcome, Kath, if you're willing to give us advice on how we can get over it, because you're right plugged in there, uh, and we need all the friends we can to communicate. And where we're not communicating it well, we need to do better. But it's a communication rather than a substance issue, I, I believe. And to Nick Hillman's points, um, what would you say to the person who wa wanted to narrow down to three? Nick, uh, wherever you are, we live in a world in the 21st century where we need breadth. The IB, you know... Uh, everybody does maths. As an educationalist, that's what we need. Everybody studies a language, a second language. We need to understand each other's language. Everybody studies the arts. Everybody studies a humanity. On top of that, Nick, they study an extended essay, theory of knowledge that allows them to discern the difference between uh, truth and Trump land. And they also, uh, they also have this wonderful all the way through all the different IB programs we haven't spoken enough about tonight, the IB learner profile, including curiosity. And this is what the world needs. But they also, at the higher level, that's really deep knowledge that they're taking. Isn't that true, the IB high level? You know, as deep. So that person, you can say, you're going to have your depth. And the point about the university, it's not that they're not, the VC's not doing great jobs, and they are all admirable people, but because they haven't themselves often studied this kind of breadth, they're not so aware about the educational possibility. I think if they're saying the IB, you know, I think they need to be doing more to encourage their admissions tutors and their subject specialists to be far more open about the IB because you know, they should come and look at it. You know, I would invite every vice-chancellor in the land to come and spend a day in an IB school and talk to the students. And the most encouraging thing about uh, Simon Rana's Westminster Academy, which is a difficult uh, state school, is when I spoke to the students there, picking up what David said, they said, we've chosen the IB because it's more difficult, because it's so challenging. I love that. David? I agree. Knowledge is an antidote to fake news. I agree to the breadth post-16, obviously. I disagree with Nick, but he could be right. Uh, that's part of the mission statement. In, in the sense that uh, some... In, in, in my school, we, I run the International Baccalaureate, and, and although some of my colleagues think I'm, I've compromised a little bit here, it's a big comprehensive school, we run A-Levels too. But that is in the context of what I call the Anglo Baccalaureate, I would, wouldn't I? That's four A-levels. That's a language. That's CAS. Um, that's work experience wherever it's possible. It's a visit abroad. It's a baccalaureate in its own sense. It's more than the sum of its parts. We insist on the four A-levels. They might drop down to three, but I get very little resistance to that. And if our job in schools is to get young people where they want to go, or maybe a little bit further than they ever thought they could, 
They've got to keep their options open. They've got to be broadly educated. And they've got to be ready to change and, and modify their thinking as they move forwards. And it's our job. The, biggest, the best career advice, we're told the Gatsby benchmarks and so on about we've got to now introduce, reintroduce career education in a sense, is, is, is the best advice for a career is keep it broad until the last minute. Uh, and it's our job to enthuse them in that thinking. There is paradox though, isn't there? I mean, I'm just thinking back when I was at school, I, when I moved into sixth form, I got to give up all the things I was either bored by or bad at and keep going with the things I was good at and interested in. And that actually made me more interested in learning. And then when I got to university, I got to do the one thing I was really interested in and not bad at. Um, and then I got really interested in learning, developed that attitude, a love of learning. And it was only actually at that point that I wished I'd done a few more things earlier on and hadn't given so much up. So anyway, um, some more questions. Gentlemen here. Thank you. And George, uh, I agree with everything that's been said so far about the advantage of the breadth of the education system uh, and the advantages of making those cross-connections. I guess my challenge to all of us, and I know the HE sector very well, uh, but also I know the school sector by observation, is that we're not actually, as educators, always living that ourselves. We're not seeing the mathematician in the school teaching abroad... You know, bringing in uh, other things into maths. We're not seeing the historian, seeing how they can use maths in the individual subject. And while I think the IB is better than A-levels at that, I still think there is a very strong departmental structure. And we're modeling for our students a very narrow discipline base, albeit in the IB, you are making some more connections and that there are more disciplines. Lady at the front here. Just wait for the microphone. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm Jennifer Wilson, working on a project with a group of people from many disciplines called Generative Education. And I just wanted to go a little bit off-piste on what you were talking about, um, the audience being the universities who um, view it as um, kind of that the, the back stops with them. But um, I think what's missing in all of and much of this with education is the acknowledgement of what the true finish line, sort of what the true graduation ceremony is. So it's not because going through school, it was always for me to get to university. But after that, and now what the plot of adults is, uh, the next graduation is death. And I think that is really missing from a lot of this. And it sorts out a lot of the problems and cuts out a lot of beating around the bush in terms of people living by their values and finding an adequate way of being. And that's what I think the vision of 21st, 21st century enlightenment education, the plot of that is for getting people to live well, to be um, in well-being and to be able to die well. And I just think that death is often not mentioned enough, so therefore I thought I would put it in there because I work with young people and t teaching them about impermanence and death is very useful in letting them it come out with nobody's uh, permission required. Thank you very much. Um, great question. Probably not a quote for the Ibsca leaflet. <laughs> and I, I'll, take a, I'll take a third one from the lady in the second row, please, if you just wait for the mic. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say in answer to Nick that I think that maybe it's a matter of expectation. I mean, in the sense that if you look at um, other education systems in the world, and I've lived in Italy, obviously um, students start out at the age of 
11 or whatever it is, thinking that they're going to carry on all those subjects. And perhaps it's simply because in the UK, you know that you can give up so many subjects that you think that that will motivate you. But in actual fact, if you had a wider expectation from the start, then possibly something yeah. like the IB system would work very well. Thank you. Only at an IB event do you get audience members answering other audience members' <laughs> questions while, while the panel sit on. Um, let's take one more from the lady in the third row over here. That's it. No, don't just speak because the people on the, um, at home watching on the web won't hear you. That's it. Thank you. Okay, so um, my name's Yasmin and I'm a lecturer at the University of West London. Um, and my question is basically... Oh, that's better. Or question or comment, I don't know what it is. Um, so what I want to say is that we've heard about the IB and how um, it will create those individuals that are productive citizens and caring and emotionally aware and environmentally aware. Um, and the government isn't doing enough in terms of money or whatever um, to make that a likelihood as a, as a subject to be studied and so the GCSEs are revamped and revised and the A-levels um, and those children are taught to um, just pass exams but then they get to university and, and the government has now with all the funding issues and the office for students um, is now expecting universities to provide those students who have been who've gone through a certain system um, to then teach them those skills that should have been taught at a younger age um, and then we get them at 18, 19, 20 and we are supposed to teach them those things when that they've never been exposed to that. Yeah, if, yeah. yeah I don't know if I'm making any sense. So sorry. <laughs> so um, what, I, what I want to basically ask you is that is that to... to so why is that? Is that because it's a money issue and so governments don't want to invest in that? They want to put pressure on the universities because they want to remove the poor performing universities? Okay, that's it. Okay. Thank you. Um, I mean, I might, I might just turn to David first of all because university readiness is, is an argument you hear in support of IB quite a lot, that, that, that students develop the, the study skills and the life skills self-regulation, self-discipline, timekeeping, planning, all the rest of it that's needed to work independently, to study independently. What's your experience of that from, from where you sit? Well, certainly IB students have an advantage when it comes to university um, in terms of admissions authorities. In years gone by, we used to have to spend most of the summer holiday explaining to universities what the IB was. We don't perhaps quite so much that with that now, although we do with the career programme. Um, but I think uh, in the 4A level programme also enables students to have an insurance grade. Uh, that's one reason why we get so many people to university. But, but of course, it's not all about university now. Mm -hmm. There's so many, which is why I mentioned it here, there are so many other progression routes to, university, uh, to higher education. Um, and that, that wide skill set is, is even more fundamental to, to their success in getting them where they want to go or a little bit further than they 
thought they could. And do your alumni drop out of university less than non-IB students, or do you not know that? that, that, um, that I'd, I'd, I'd never admit that, even if I knew it. Mm. But um, I, I don't have that information. But I, I would say that some of the information that Anthony, mm. some of the research that Anthony was quoting, I think, suggests that IB students are less likely to drop out yeah. than A-level students. I'm, I'm seeing nodding heads from our IBSCO colleagues. That's true, is it? Okay, open it up to the panel to pick up on any of those points or questions. Very quickly then to Jennifer, you know, it's about breadth. It's really, really hard. So I ran a school, Wellington College, Julian Thomas, the new head is here tonight. It's really hard when you see kids in year 11 and they're trying to decide between IB and A-level and the gossip's going all round and they know that they can get uh, three easy A-level grades and unconditional offers spreading now. And they ask themselves, you know, why do we put ourselves through all of this uh, extra when we can actually have quite a comfortable uh, two years in the sixth form? And that is really dispiriting. And we should not be in that position. And I am ashamed of our education ministers in this country in the face of the hard work of our teachers in our schools trying to do the very best for their children when we have a completely broken and crummy education system which is gearing people towards the 20th century and one it's not just the skills which i quite quoted from those report after report we are simply preparing people in the wrong way we are not preparing them for work as we heard naomi uh, agree also. We're not preparing them for life so that they can live successful, uh, happy, meaningful lives because we don't talk about meaning or love or, or purpose uh, in our schools. We're not preparing them well enough for uni, which is coming over here to Yasmin's question, which is why so many of them, one in four, are reporting difficulties. They're having to wait up to four months to see a counsellor. Uh, the system is very wrong, and it's not because of the teachers. It's because we have people. Where was the last education secretary who truly had a philosophy and a vision and a passion for education that we believed? Question question i mean when you know uh, and this is more important than anything what happens if they often get wise after they stand down um and maybe you know maybe that they have their own children who have difficulties and it just makes it just affects them because education is about the heart as well as the head uh, and it's wrong and i'm ashamed of it Naomi, any last thoughts? Yeah, just a quick follow-up on what happens between graduation and death. Um, <laughs> that, that one of just the things... Quick, yeah. yeah, I will be quick. One of the <laughs> things that we think about on the future of work is that it is entirely possible there just isn't going to be enough work to go around, and it is possible that we need to educate and prepare people to live a meaningful, productive, fulfilling life without work. Um, and so that needs a, a very different kind of preparation than we're making today. Thank you. David, any last thoughts from you? Yeah, I'd like to come back to this university question and say that, first of all, universities can't say we're waiting for the schools to sort things out. I think universities, given the way the system works, how much we regret it, um, have got a responsibility to try to counter the damage that's done by early specialisation, and they can do that. Um, look, one of our, my regrets, uh, looking back on my time, as Anthony's inviting us to, is that... We got caught in the language of tuition fees. 
when it's actually university fees. I mean, there's a whole set of other questions. It's not, of course, a fee that anybody pays up front, but it's, a it's paying for a university education in its full breadth. And what you do observe in universities is, as I said earlier, the students who stop doing maths at 16, who turn up, they're doing politics, they think that's fascinating, or, say, thinking of the work we do at the Resolution Foundation, they're interested in poverty, they're doing social policy. They, and they suddenly discover that to be effective in social policy, you need quantitative skills. Unless you can analyse data, you're not going to win an argument or come up with some points on poverty. And, but they stop doing maths at 16, so the university gets them back into maths because it's what they need to study if they are to be... Uh, if to understand regression analysis of American voting behavior, or if they are to really understand poverty. And they lay on, there's indeed now a program I created called Sigma, which is a program where we funded extra maths for students who thought they wouldn't need maths at university to discover they do. On the other side, it's not just the STEM side, it's the, the students, perhaps under family pressure, have gone to do a highly vocational course at university, accountancy, pharmacy, whatever, and then discover that what they really like most is performing in the university theatre or joining the, con the, and joining the orchestra and study that, discover that their love is music or performance. And a university should be a place where people can make that kind of journey, make that kind of discovery, and it should be easier, therefore, to move from subject to subject. Another thing a university can do is make the route, even if you enter to do one course, make the route to another course a lot easier. Universities are autonomous, nobody can force them to do that kind of thing. But uh, I think, you know, somebody was, it might have been Anthony, was quite hard on vice chancellors. I think a lot of vice chancellors are busy using the resource they've got to provide all those extra options for their university students going way beyond what the young person thought they were opting for when they did those three A levels. Thank you, David. We're out of time, folks, I'm afraid. So to those of you watching from somewhere else online, thank you for joining us. Um, I'm sorry about this next announcement to those of you that aren't in the room, because those of you that are in the room are all invited for a drink downstairs to wish the IB a happy 50th birthday, for which many, many thanks to Ibska, who are paying for it. So thank you to them. And then finally, if I could just ask you all to join me in thanking our four excellent panellists, Anthony and Naomi. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations. <laughs>